It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by a friend of the show, Neta Tului Simnani, who we usually have on to talk about her excellent vice reporting, but today is here to discuss her new book, They Said They Wanted Revolution, about her family's connections to Iran and the revolution there and what that means for America. It is a absolutely beautiful work. Neta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Morning. I've been excited for this book for a long time because you have been writing this book for a long time. To set it up, Serious Progress listeners are very familiar with the concept of the resistance. Your parents were the resistance uh, for Iran in the late 70s, in the late 60s, 70s, early 80s as student activists in Berkeley. And then as they returned to Iran to try to get better conditions for the people who were living there, leading sadly, uh, devastatingly, to your father's execution. This is the this is their story. It is your story. It is the story of the Iranian diaspora. It is um, sort of the story of anybody who who feels like their purpose is bigger than themselves. And it was absolutely heartbreaking and fascinating. I freaking loved this book. Um, oh. So I guess I, I want to, it, 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 it all, it felt like, it felt like you just sort of ripped your heart out and stuck it on the page there. So I want to start there. Like, how did you decide that this incredibly intimate story was something that you were going to tell for your family? Um, well, it was the book that I always wanted to write. I think growing up in the, we came over, we escaped my, my mom and myself and, um, our family, some family members. Um, but I grew up in DC just outside of the city. Um, and I have to say not, it felt like this story that I didn't have the answers to. I remember being quite young and someone asking how my dad died and I didn't know exactly how to answer that. Um, I didn't know what the answer was essentially because it was Mm -hmm. so complicated and I was, you know, very young, but, um, when, as I grew older, you know, you, some puzzle pieces, this happens for all of us with our family. Some answers to the questions about our family start falling into place as you get older. And I think it's rare that we sit down and we try to like put it all, like, let me just figure out what the story of my family is in this broad tapestry and what does it mean? And my family um, was also an American family. Like we came over in the fifties with my grandmother uh, as the first wave. So it also felt like a deeply American story that wasn't being told. So anyway, um, after my mother passed away, it just felt like I ha- I was sitting with the legacy of all these people who had been gone, who were gone, uh, my mother, my father, my grandparents, a country I didn't understand both in the U.S. and in Iran. And um And, you know, I had been working for most of my adult life trying to figure out, well, how do I get to the bottom of the story? Um, And and I don't know that there is a bottom to the story. There was only the story I could write when, as I was like 
reporting, researching, and then finally when I was sat down to to write it, which, as you said, took almost 10 years. (laughs) What were were some of the first things that you learned about the story as you started doing more research? I mean, and how does it compare to what you previously understood? Like, how did did, um, what you, you know, thought the story was, how did that evolve as you did more research? Yeah, I mean, there was some basic stuff. Um, My mom used to tell the story about when they took over the Statue of Liberty. And, um, and they, you know, she said it in, well, that and then there was this big um, protest in 77 in DC. And so she would tell these stories about both. But um, I had in my head that when they took over the Statue of Liberty. When they were student activists. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, when they were, um, yes, thank you, Jess. When they were student activists and they were protesting um, the Shah and the U.S.'s relationship with the Shah uh, in the late 70s, um, I had thought it was like, I don't don't know what I thought. I thought, no, that's not true. I thought they were like, you know, like holding hands, like, kumbayaing outside (laughs) but what I didn't realize is like the amount of work it takes that it wasn't that flashy on the one hand it wasn't that flashy on the one hand it was more um thought through more deliberate there was um they had chosen the Statue of Liberty for a reason um they were the first group to take over the statue from the inside which ended up happening again later um they really uh I don't think I understood how sophisticated the Confederation, the Iranian student movement was. Um, I didn't understand how they really worked with the U.S. anti-war movement, um, the anti-Vietnam War movement. They worked like, and um, and also the civil rights movement and the free speech movement before that. I don't think I realized how closely related all these groups were mm-hmm. um, and how much they learned from each other. Um, you know, I didn't realize, for example, uh, the global 60s were so intertwined with the anti-war movement. I mean, I'm sorry, the anti-Shah movement um, in, in Europe, for example. So there was all these moments, which I tried to get to in the book, of me, of just seeing how the anti-Shah movement and the Iranian student movement had somehow been forgotten in the in this like broader story of when we talk about the 60s or the new left or just as you said resistance um, when actually what they were able to do was foment or help foment um, revolution from the outside and they worked for you know almost 15 years uh, longer in some cases um, I mean you could argue that this started as soon as the the coup in 1953 happened, that the students in the U.S., the Iranian students in the U.S. started agitating. So, you know, there was all all these moments where I just, I hadn't known how many intersections there were between the history of these two countries, between the history of the political history of the left, what it means when we say revolution really like changed for me as I was, as I was researching this book. Yeah, that's what I thought. What I thought was so fascinating about it is that like, this is a story that like, I don't share. I don't know anybody who has it except for you. 
This is the story of Iranian revolution. This is a story of political um, political exile, political execution, political imprisonment. Um, and it is so freaking relatable. Like that's that's the piece of it. Like I'm reading like names that I've never heard before, situations that I would never expect to find myself in. And it's sort of impossible not to put yourself in the story, like what would I do in that moment? And as we're all sort of contemplating the rapid destruction of our own democracy and figuring out our own place and how, you know, I, I mean, the conversations that we have with friends, like, would you stay and fight? Would you try to find another country to go to? Like, what would you do? Like what happens? Reading this book was like, oh, this happened for them. Mm -hmm. And these people are exactly like us. They have exactly the same conversations with their friends and family. And they made decisions that in, in some cases ended, ended their lives because of principle. You keep coming back to the, the, the principle as sort of the driving force of, of the decisions that we make in life. What is it like to unpack in your own family the fact that your parents made decisions that at least in your father's case meant he didn't get to raise you, but he stayed true to the person that he was, which makes you the person who you are. Like, what was it like to unpack all of that? So there's a couple of questions, a couple of things that I think that you asked that are really interesting. Like, what are we, how, I'm glad that the book felt relatable because, you know, I, I wrote, you know, half of it and rewrote it and re-edited it in the, kind of in the aftermath of the 2016 election. And then, you know, it's framed, um, in by 2020 essentially uh 2021 or sorry 2020 into 2021 um and i think i was very preoccupied with the questions that you raised what how am i what am i meant to do as a citizen of not just this country but the world um what are my obligations what are all of our obligations and people i think started throwing out the words revolution or burn it down. And, and I realized all of a sudden that we were in some ways experiencing a burning down and, and experiencing a revolution. It just might not look like the way that we had thought it was going to. And so, yeah. So in the kind of, in that framework, I, you know, I had spent my lifetime going back and forth between feeling like I respect like, of course, I wanted my father to die for what he believed in, because that's like, you know, the pinnacle of what we were going to do. And then some years, literally, I would be like, this is bullshit. Why? Excuse me. This isn't. You can you can bullshit on this. This isn't. Um, but he was my father and I wanted a dad. You know, I wanted both parents. I wanted I wanted my my dad. And so there was that going back and forth. And, you know, honestly, I'm not sure that I've completely reconciled. I mean, that's not, I'm older now and I think I've made peace with it. I think he, I think we all, and I say this in the book, I think we all do the best we can with the information that we have. And, you know, maybe that feels like I'm giving people too much credit, but I don't think so. I think sometimes the worst mistakes we make in life are made because we didn't know any better you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's naive and a bit cruel not to, to acknowledge that. Um, and, you know, I mean, we all live in the consequence, we're all living 
<laughs> in the consequences of, of other people's decisions. That's in our own and other people's. Um, and that's, you know, that's yeah. just, I think, the human condition. What I did, what I think the process of writing this book and reporting the book, but but maybe ultimately putting it together, because that was a really hard thing to do, was coming to terms and making peace with with what happened um, and being able to hold the fact that there was a lot of good that came from their work. Um, but there was also, you know, the Islamic Republic rose mm-hmm. up. Um, and, you know, we all, again, we all live in the con- with the consequences of our actions. And that's not to say that we shouldn't take action. We always should, I think. But you also have to understand that there are consequences that are unforeseeable. Um, so I think like for people who are, who are drawn to activism, to service, to making change, I think there has to be, you can't go blindly forward. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to understand that sometimes things happen that you haven't prepared for and you have to be willing to sit in the discomfort of that. I think that's, that's what I think. Yeah. So one of the things that's really fascinating is how your own family history and what's happening right now, in some ways you can, you can draw connections. So, you know, your mother being pregnant and you being pregnant um, during um, violent unrest. I mean, I mean, in your case, we're talking about the insurrection. (laughs) Um, And obviously, we were talking about your parents in the context of um, the revolution. Can you talk about what's going through your head when a violent insurrection is happening in America, in Washington, D.C., and you are pregnant? And, and obviously, you have done all this research for the last 10 years about your own yeah. family history. I mean, what is that thought process like? That gives <laughs> a lot to process. Have you been, how have you been processed that piece of it? Um, I, you know, I think I'm, st- I think, oh, God, it was, yeah, it was a rough day. <laughs> it was a rough day. <laughs> I mean, it was a rough day for people. Like for I mean, I was home reporting from home. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what I, I there is. I mean, I say in the book, I don't know what's coming. I still don't know what's coming. I think what mm. was the most heartbreaking um, is watching how it was twisted so quickly afterwards mm. and how I think that has been the hardest part for me. Um, Mitch McConnell may have just this week put his foot down, but I, I don't know what that means over a year later. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. if you can't, if we can't look at that and call it for what it is, and you know, um, me saying something as simple as just describing it in the book, getting like some pretty you know, some vitriol online, it it just, it's that level of disconnect between what we all know to be true, that there was a violent insurrection, that um, this is just a part of a movement that is going forward. And we don't know what that means. And if anybody says that they do, I think that they are kidding themselves. Um, And yeah, and I was bringing forward, I, I have a baby you know, and not just me, plenty of people have babies every day and having a baby or, 
adopting a child or doing anything that like affirms your commitment to life is an move is an optimistic move i think um but how do you square that when when you see when you see something that is so devastating and you know the answers are lena is i i, I am still processing it mm. i don't know how I look at my kid and he's so full of life and so happy and joyful. And I am so glad to be his mother. And I am really, I I don't know how to answer some of the questions he's going to have, which might be the questions that I had. Why? (laughs) Why did you decide to do this? Why did you decide to go forward with this family now? When you know, when you, there was so much you didn't know, but what you did know, there was a lot of darkness there. Mm. Um, the, the violent insurrection that your mom lived through in Iran led to two-year-old you, like, traveling via smuggler and horse over the desert. Right. While she's yeah. pregnant with your brother. Like, having that in your immediate one generation removed history, and then sitting there on January 6th pregnant? Like, yeah. that's... That's too much. (laughs) (laughs) I think like one of the things that for me, I don't know, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm talking down to anybody, but one of the things that I feel we as Americans can be very glib and about our own democracy and our safety. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that I find really hard to stomach because um, we are a relatively young country and I come from a, you know, my family is comes from an ancient country and, um, and we haven't, America hasn't been around that long. And it is in my mind, uh, fragile as all democracies are. Um, and so I feel very, I, I think I see the cracks and feel like the the fragility in my bones mm-hmm. and I get nervous and I feel very I feel sad when people are too comfortable or too certain about um about the structures of our of our republic and I I just I don't think anyone should feel too comfortable <laughs> ever <Yeah. laughs> probably but certainly not now what's your biggest fear in the near future. I mean, I know what some of mine are. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so that's looming large over everything. But in terms of the the fragility of our democracy, we talk every day about that. What are you afraid of? Um, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of that being. I mean, there. I think people know how fragile our democracy are is and um and i think some people are using that um to their own benefit and i think that that is very scary um Mm -hmm. i think one of the strengths of our democracy is that you know we have um, a federal system and a state system um but i feel like i'm watching cracks just like going straight from one side of the U.S. to the other, um, kind of bifurcating the country, um, and I'm—I don't know—I don't know what my what my responsibility is there. Frankly, like 
there are states in this country that have pretty horrific healthcare systems, Mm -hmm. education systems, where people who are in the majority don't have a voice. Um, I'm watching, you know, book bannings happening. I'm watching. um, The the banning of the history that you spent so long reporting out, like this, like this book doesn't get taught in Iran. Like this book gets banned in Iran. Like how, how hard was it to get this published here? And do you have any plans to try to get it there? Um, This book, this book had a lot of rejections. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, uh, I tried to sell it about four or five years ago. And, um, and, you know, this is, I, I don't, I'm not being modest. I, this is the first time I wrote a book and I, it's, it's hard to write a book. So I'm, so, you know, people probably had plenty of reasons. Zulina knows. Yeah. 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 No, no, it's like people decide to do this a second time after the first. And I'm, I'm, that's the question that I have now having done it once. Yeah. Oh my God, Zerlina, let's talk. Um, but, <laughs> I, but, you know, so it's, you know, putting that aside. But one of the things that I was being told over and over again, which kind of goes back to what Jess was saying, was like nobody or they, people were like, we don't know how to sell this book. This doesn't seem to be something that people would be interested in, which was so strange to me because, um, you know, it seemed to me to be something that, maybe just because it was me, but it it seemed to me to be like, there was a love story. There was a political thriller. People were escaping on horseback. There was an, you know. It's border crossings and insurrections. How is that not relatable? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, but uh, anyway, but one of the things that I realized um, uh, as I reread the rejections last month was so much (laughs) of this um, was, so much of the the rejections were kind of saying that there can only be a few stories about Iran and America kind of intertwined and they can't be complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to be something that people understand. And one of the things they understand is that Iran is bad and people try to escape and America is good. And that's where they, they run to, you know, um, uh, and and I think that this is a complicated narrative. It is a very deeply entwined story about America and Iran. I don't think it ex- one exists without the other at this point. Um, I've always felt like the two countries were mirror images of each other. Um, and that is part of what's in this book. So I, I think it is, you know, it wasn't I think if I would try to sell it now, I hope that maybe there's space for for voices that aren't just one-sided. Um, and then another thing that I was told over and over again was we already have one Iranian. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have room for another. Wait, who's <laughs> Which, the other one? You know, Zerlina, uh, <laughs> you know, apparently there's only allowed one. So if you no, can no, think wait. of one person. Wait, who's the other? Who's... I'm like, who's the I'm, other one? 
I've never Who read a book it? like this. Yeah, me either. I'm like, what are they talking well, I think, about? I think they had a Iranian <laughs> author who was writing like YA fiction and they were like, oh, 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 so we oh. can't do this. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that's all to say that it was very hard. I am glad that I pushed through, but it was heartbreaking. And it, I have heard over the past couple of weeks that people have started getting it in Iran. So um, I don't. Um, I mean, I don't know. People have talked about maybe trying to get it translated into Farsi. I, I have no, I haven't thought of doing anything like that. Um, but, but it is very, I mean, I can't go back to Iran right now. Um, so there's something that's like deeply moving that the book has made it across that border, mm-hmm. um, and is being read by is being read by people who are my age and younger. And that feels amazing to me um, because we also don't get like, I think the people who start revolutions and the people, but the children of revolutions rarely get to tell their stories. Yeah. So that feels very important to me. Well, I am truly grateful that you have gotten to tell yours, and I would recommend this book to literally anybody who is interested in a good story, but especially if you're interested in American history, because that's what this is too, in addition to being the history of the Iranian diaspora. Uh, They said they wanted revolution, a memoir of my parents. Netta Taloui-Sanani, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate you. you. Thank you both. What a wonderful way to start my day. Thanks, Alina. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. Anytime. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.